He'll make it very dramatic. Uh, good afternoon, and welcome to the final panel of the inaugural conference by the Princeton Institute on International Regional Studies on imperialism and empire and liberalism and the relationship between the two. Uh, probably of the four panels, this is the one that I least have to introduce as this has been a topic that has been in newspaper columns, has been discussed on television and in various seminars for the last year. Is it possible for a liberal republic to be an empire? Does imperialism represent a threat to those same liberal republican values? Uh, is the United States currently an empire? Can we speak of an American empire? If so, what is its future? If not, what is this particular beast that we are watching? Um, we have conducted the, the panels previously very nicely and having breaks, etc. Unfortunately, one of our speakers needs to catch a flight, which means that he has to leave precisely at 4 o'clock. So this is going to be a little bit of a forced march. Uh, we're not going to be taking a break. We're going to do the panels, we're going to do the comments, and then open it up to questions. Uh, we do that because we only have two hours, and I want to make sure that we get in as much dialogue as possible. So excuse the, the lack of comfort, as it were, but it's just re required by the timeline. Our first speaker today is Professor John Eikenberry. Uh, John is the Peter Crow Professor of Geopolitics and Global Justice at Georgetown University. His most recent books include America Unrivaled, The Future of Balance of Power, and After Victory, Institution, Strategic Restraint, and the Building of Order After Major Wars. May I say, this might be in slightly bad taste, that I also have the wonderful honor of saying that John will be our colleague beginning in July of this year. So welcome, John. Thanks, Miguel. It's great to be here and, and to uh, be part of this inaugural conference, uh, which I think has been a great success as one who has been here for two days. It's been a feast. And uh, for those of you who also have been here for two days, it's there's been so much feasting that now we're all ready for a nap, I think, but uh, uh, we will uh, proceed anyway and, uh, um, uh, and, and see what we can do here. Well, my focus is on American power and world order, and this uh, issue has received uh, a great deal of attention, but it's also been given new urgency by the rise of what some of us call unipolarity, the rise of American power as the world's only superpower. Never before in world history has a state been so powerful relative to the rest of the world. Uh, this is a surprising development. Uh, most of us who thought about international politics after the Cold War, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, thought that the, the next formation of global order would be a multipolar uh, world order. And in fact, it's become more hierarchical and more one power centered. The United States began the 1990s as the only superpower and it had a better decade than the other major powers. Uh, it grew twice as fast as Europe and three times as fast as Japan. Uh, China is still developing. Russia has collapsed economically. And so the United States grew relative to the other major powers. Its military power also expanded. It lowered its defense spending at a lower rate than the other powers after the Cold War, and then, of course, bumped it up dramatically after 9-11. 85% of world expenditures on military R&D takes place in America, which suggests that this military edge is going to remain in place for a long time to come. The U.S., if current projections continue, will spend half the world's expenditure on military 
uh, capacity by the year 2007. So the U.S. has this global security reach with this uh, military power underneath it that is quite remarkable. Chalmers Johnson in his new book, uh, The Sorrows of Empire, suggests and tells that the, that the U.S. has this base structure, which is quite elaborate, and then at one point he says, the U.S. military has 234 golf courses around the world. So there is a remarkable uh, 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 system in place. For the first time in the modern era, uh, the world's leading state can operate on the global stage without the counterbalancing constraints of other great powers. And it is, is because of that we can say we have entered the unipolar era. Not surprisingly, scholars have begun to talk about the international systems in new ways, using concepts such as empire, hierarchy, and uh, hegemony, bringing back older concepts that were used in, in, uh, to explain and to, to look at previous eras. Post 9-11, the Bush administration has further brought to the attention of the world this asymmetry of power. Uh, in 18 months, the U.S. invaded two Muslim countries, uh, sharply defend, uh, ex, uh, ex increased military spending, and uh, put forward a very controversial national security strategy. All uh, of this thrust American power into the light of day and unsettled world, world politics. Worry about unipolarity and how it will operate, what the new rules are of this new power configuration, is the not-so-hidden subtext of a lot of world politics today, including the tension, recent tension in U.S.-European relations. It has figured into the presidential campaigns in Germany, Brazil, and South Korea. Uh, and it is a debate that has triggered basic questions about the character of world politics, the fundamental questions of international relations, namely who benefits and who commands. Those are questions that are being discussed by allies and and uh, adversaries alike around the world in new and remarkable ways. 9-11 might mark a watershed in how the U.S. sees the world, but it has certainly marked a watershed in how the world sees the United States. This new reality, unipolarity, uh, forces us to ask lots of big questions, and I think four are most important. First of all, what is the character of U.S. domination? If domination is generally a mix of force and consent, is that mix changing? Is there more force? Is it more coercive than in the past? What restrains U.S. power is the second question I would ask. What, what disciplines American power? What put, puts restraints on it, if anything? Thirdly, how stable is it? Will it last? Will it trigger what great power concentrations have always triggered in the past, namely counterbalancing coalitions? Will upheaval, disintegration be the future of unipolarity? And then finally, the most important question, I think, that brings us to liberalism and empire is the question, which is, I think, the great political question of our time, which is, is unipolarity consistent with multilateral rule-based order? That is to say, is it going to be a system of power or a system of power and rules and institutions? Or does, does unipolarity, if you will, to use a political science phrase, select for unilateralism? Unipolarity does seem to mean a world of hierarchy. Political scientists have studied, studied anarchy uh, for all these decades, but in many ways it's a different configuration. It is hierarchical. But what kind of hierarchy? Is it a hierarchy of empire or something else? And that really is our question. 
Now, the world clearly worries about this, and you could uh, measure this uh, if you travel and read uh, the way in which people think about this new American power. There does seem to be a worry that the U.S. is making a transition, and with it the international system is making a transition between a world of hegemonic order uh, characterized with liberal features, that is to say order built around multilateralism, alliance, strategic restraint, cooperative security, institutional cooperation, to hegemonic order built on imperial characteristics, unilateralism, coercive domination, reduced commitment to the shared rules of the game. And it's this worry that unipolarity is bringing with it a transition away from the old order that has led many people to see a crisis even within the West itself between Europe and the United States. With Europe, uh, the embodiment of a belief in multilateralism and the rule of law. After all, that's what Europe did to become Europe. And the U.S. seeking to protect its autonomy, to reclaim its, its sovereignty. Francis Fukuyama has even argued that the sources of legitimacy for liberal democracy are very different in Europe and the United States. Europe, the source comes from the international system in his rendering, where it is thereby easier for Europe to cede authority upwards to transnational, international institutions, whereas the United States, it's a more popular sovereignty base, base, basing of legitimacy for liberal democracy, which makes it harder to give it up. And when you do, you do so grudgingly, and you always look for ways to get it back. So a basic crisis in the West uh, exposed by this new power configuration. My argument in my paper uh, is that unipolarity has unleashed a struggle between liberal and imperial logics. Both are out there, and I'm going to talk about both. But in the end, the US, in my view, will need and want a rule-based order. That is to say, the best image of, of what's going on today is not the rise of this power, thereby triggering the shedding of the rules and institutions that have been in place before, but rather a rising power seeking to renegotiate its order. And that's confusing to observe because in the past we've always seen this happen when one country replaces another country as the leading state. A rising state comes up and through its new advantages builds its own order to serve its own interests. But what we have today is America rising up and attempting to renegotiate its own order. And that's something we haven't seen before. Uh, it is a transformation, but in my view, in the end of the cycle, if incentives, costs, uh, and uh, uh, prudent behavior uh, weighs in for, with anything in way, in way choices are made, that we, we will see uh, a, 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 an order based on rules and institutions. Now let me say three things in kind of unpacking my argument. Number one, talk about unipolarity and the imperial impulse or temptation. Secondly, talk about the distinctive features of U.S. power that in my view makes it somewhat different from empires of the past. And thirdly, end as the optimist on incentives for multilateralism and rule-based order. So starting to, uh, let's start talking about unipolarity uh, and the, what makes the logic of empire quite remarkable is to sort of look with fresh eyes on this power configuration. It's possible to make quite sweeping arguments about the international system. In many ways, for 500 years, international order has been built on 
Westphalian logic of states, sovereign states in a system of anarchy. And in this image, this Westphalian image, states have a monopoly on the use of force domestically, while the international system is maintained through a diffusion and equilibrium of power. Today, in many ways, that whole system has been flipped on its head. The system is more hierarchical than anarchical, and the Westphalian logic has turned over. That is to say, the U.S. has a quasi-monopoly on the use of force, not always legitimate, as we know, while states are increasingly giving up their sovereignty in one way or another. Sovereignty is becoming more contingent, more uh, available for the scrutiny of the international community, read the United States. So we have this double transformation, the rise of a state which only one state now really has the power to project force, and the unbundling of sovereignty, together with the rise of catastrophic terrorism that makes the unbundling something that's going to continue for a long, long time. That is a very volatile brew to have those two transformations, the transformation of, if you will, peace on, of international order moving from a peace based on equilibrium to a peace based on hegemony, and secondly, the transformation from uh, uh, state sovereignty to this kind of more contingent system. So we are, therefore, looking at a system where images of empire do look quite plausible. And you add to that the Bush administration's uh, willingness to grandly embrace this new unipolar logic. And it's found uh, most sweepingly in the National Security Strategy Report of last year, uh, October of 2002, uh, where the U.S. does embrace what I would consider a kind of strategy of order with imperial characteristics. The U.S. Will, will remain militarily in a class of itself. There will be no peer competitor. The U.S. will stand above the international community, less encumbered by rules and institutions. The U.S. will take on, as a result of this moving upwards and out of the international system, obligations which are, from this national security strategy point of view, uh, part of the new bargain. The U.S. will provide order. The the solution to the problems of Hobbes will be the Leviathan, the American Leviathan, but a liberal Leviathan. Uh, it's an image of the U.S. moving outside of the system, above the system. Um, there's an old heavyweight fighter, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, who used to always say, uh, uh, bragging about his own ability, said, you know, I float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Well, that's America in this new image. The U.S. will be above the system floating, uh, and where it sees its own interests and its uh, own self-image of uh, ensuring order, it will sting like a bee. Uh, and, and, of course, this image has been captured in uh, President Bush's West Point speech, where he said, to use his words, America has and intends to keep military strength beyond challenge, thereby making destabilizing arms races pointless and limiting rivalries to trade and other pursuits. That is to say, the era of great power rivalry will be over. The U.S. will remain this concentrated power that no other state should dare attempt to equal, and thereby we are doing a favor for everyone. In many ways, this is the most Wilsonian statement since Woodrow Wilson when Wilson said that U.S. power was to be used and created to keep a, a, a maintain a, a universal dominion of right. So the U.S. proposes to transform the international system, taking advantage of this double logic of change that I mentioned earlier. 
But is it really empire? Now, Neil Ferguson, in a new book uh, called Colossus, uh, and others, Anthony uh, Pagden, uh, have talked about empire in a way that allows you to see this political formation that I'm describing as a empire, that empires have always been built in the past on visions of benign open order. Alexander the Great's ambition was not just to conquer, but to assimilate outsiders and unite East and West. Rome sought to provide a living space for diverse people and create peace and order and defend civilization. British imperialism has also clearly had a liberal inspiration. If you listen to Churchill's late, well, early 20th century defense of British imperialism, it could have been made by President Bush when he made his speech to the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, it is power put at the service of universal interests and in the development of liberty and democracy and the rule of law around the world, white man's burden. So my point is, however, that the American system is not like any other system. It is different, and empire is an inadequate, insufficient lens to make sense of what it is. Unlike past empires, the U.S. system, in my view, is more negotiated, uh, while others have sought participation uh, in it through mutual agreement and the rule of law. And if, if, to kind of make it a little bit more pointed, what I think separates American uh, political formation from empire are three characteristics, not that the other great empires didn't have any of this, but that it's qualitatively more uh, a characteristic of this system. First of all, the U.S. offers uh, to provide public goods in exchange for cooperation of other states, security provision, open markets, public goods provision. Rome built uh, the road. So this is not to say that other empires didn't provide public goods, but it's, 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 it's in, a, in a qualitatively new way. Secondly, the U.S. order is infused with rules and institutions that mediate and mute exercise of power. A great deal of the business that takes place within this political formation is institutional politics. And thirdly, weaker and sub, uh, subordinate states have some uh, buy-in, have some stake in this system. There's a political process that is operating within this American system, creating reciprocal and interactive political uh, activity and logic that makes it different from empire. So that's my first argument. My second argument tries to unpack this a little bit and ask the question, what makes American power the way it is, both, and this is the, the double-edged aspect, both so robust, so enduring, so distinctive, so unipolar, unipolar, but also something different from older style empires. So it's, it's a unique cluster of institutions, ideologies, attractions, and impulses. And I think that uh, this is uh, obvious as you sort of look back and try to make sense of American power. It's, it's manifest in complex and power, uh, paradoxical ways. During the, the 20th century, the United States was both the greatest champion of rule-based order, League of Nations, UN, human rights norms, but unusually ambivalent about operating within the logic of uh, institutional constraints. And we've seen that clearly most recently in Bush rejections of a series of agreements. The U.S. has used force more than any other state over the last 50 years, with or without U.S. or NATO sanction. Yet it also has an anti-imperial political culture and a healthy isolationist impulse. So the U.S. shows the world many different faces. 
in various degrees and in different mixtures at different moments, unilateralism, uh, interventionism, isolationism, militarism, uh, hegemony, nationalism, neoconservatism, uh, and uh, an, an unrivaled champion of democracy and the international law. My point here is it's difficult for states to simply say the U.S. is imperial or the U.S. is this, this or that, or that tomorrow we might, might not be able to engage America. Uh, it's this multifaceted aspect that I think is interesting. Different people experience American power in different ways. It's a threat to some and an opportunity to others, and at different levels. And each level has its own political process. I can think of three just off the bat. One level is American power as the kind of underwriter of globalization. And there you find a politics of the world and America that is manifest in the anti-globalization uh, moment, the, the Seattle uh, politics, uh, anti-WTO, and so forth. A second level is America as this kind of security complex, the alliance system, uh, the political partnership client system. And here, for example, you find a politics that Chalmers Johnson talks about when he uh, uses the term blowback. And then a third level is just American power as it's manifest in policies. Uh, and so you get status of forces agreement politics in Korea. Uh, you get the, the debate over Iraq, the doctrine of preemption. Uh, so all of these different levels create additional complexity. And let me just add to this complexity by indicating that power itself, American power, has at least four different aspects that reinforce unipolarity, but also make it different than empire. And very quickly, the four features are uh, traditional power assets. This is what realists talk about. Uh, here I would mention uh, American assets that, that uh, three, three assets, uh, security, protection, markets, and, and nuclear weapons. That is to say, in the first instance, hard military power allows the United States to offer protection to other countries in exchange for their cooperation. Uh, I think it, it remains remarkable that the U.S. has this relationship with Japan and Germany that remains a security organization despite the fact that Germany and Japan are now the second and third largest e economies in the world. I mean, that's odd that you would have these so-called eccentric great powers that remain affiliated even though they have grown to the size that they have. Uh, the Eastern Europe, again, finds itself attaching itself to the American system because they now, in a newer way, find advantages for, for their traditional security uh, 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 aspirations. Access to markets, the, the fact that the United States is a large market, uh, uh, reduces the incentives in Europe and East Asia to push for regional security arrangements without the United States in them. And then finally, in this traditional area, nuclear weapons. It's, this is very interesting because it creates a double-edged effect. The fact that the U.S. rose to be a great power in the, uh, in the era of nuclear weapons has had an interesting impact on America's career as a great power. It, it has this double-edged impact. It both takes great power war off the table as a way to overturn the American order, it takes away the traditional motor of history, if you, if you will, in terms of the overturning of order, but it also makes other states fear U.S. conquest less. So in that sense, it both makes American power more benign and more durable. War-driven change is removed as an historical process, and the U.S. was just lucky enough to be on top when it happened. The second dimension, geography, 
U.S. is the only great power that is not neighbored by other great powers, and this has had an impact as well. Uh, three implications come to mind. One is that America's geographical remoteness made U.S. power less threatening to others as it was rising up. It didn't trigger war or balancing. Secondly, it reinforced U.S. inclinations to direct, not to directly dominate or manage great power relations generally. It made it in America's interest to champion, if you will, universal principles of non-discrimination, open-door policy, anti-colonialism. The U.S. did that. It was good geopolitics. Uh, it was so because of the timing of America's rise and the position, geographical position. And thirdly, it has led other states to worry less about American domination. It has made the problem of abandonment more pronounced than domination. The worry is leaving us, not dominating us. And that has led to characterizations of the system, uh, quite uh, interesting ones, like here, Lundstadt, uh, Empire by Invitation, or Charles Mayer, uh, Consensual Empire. There's a whole uh, category of interesting terms that try to capture that, uh, that specific feature. Uh, the third uh, dimension of American power that I think makes it distinct historically is the role of democracy and institutions. And uh, I won't get started here because I, I've written on this and I, I'm willing to, uh, to bother you with these ideas all day long, but I'll be very brief here. Uh, the U.S. Uh, system is more open, penetrated, and institutionalized than any other uh, order in world history. And it's been... One feature of that is terribly important, I think, and that has been made problematic by Bush foreign policy is this historic bargain between the United States and, and other states. That is to say, Asia and, and Western Europe agreed to be partners with the United States and accept U.S. leadership to work with rather than resist or balance American power in exchange for the U.S. willingness to operate within these, these rules and institutions, to play by the rules, to operate within agreed uh, arrangements. Uh, to be user-friendly, if you will. And that has, again, made the power asymmetries more tolerable, even useful. You can cut deals. And then finally, the fourth dimension, which uh, I would like to think about more, but just to kind of give you a, a, just a, a, a brief sen a sense of this, the U.S. project over the last 50 years has been more or less congruent with deeper forces of modernization. This is when uh, Charles Mayer yesterday was talking about the U.S. His metaphor was surfing on a wave. The U.S. is kind of riding something that it doesn't fully control. That's why, in some sense, I argue he isn't really talking about empire in the strict sense, because America doesn't run the system. It's operating within a larger set of historical processes, and I would agree with that. But it, there is a synchronicity between the rise of U.S. power as a liberal global power and the system-wide imperatives of modernization that create a kind of functional fit between the U.S. and the wider world. Clearly, that's not true everywhere in all senses, but there's something there that makes the way in which the U.S. has risen and the larger system work in a way that doesn't trigger the antagonisms or hasn't. Uh, until recently, and in the end, I think in the long term, they won't trigger system-breaking mechanisms because of that functional fit. Um, finally, uh, let me turn to my third set of remarks, which are looking at the future and um, looking at uh, uh, the ambivalence, if you will, or the competition, the struggle, and this is what I tried to 
make sense of in my paper, the struggle between the kind of the liberal impulse and the imperial impulse. And to be sure, I am acknowledging that the two are very tightly connected. When I talked about, and when people such as Neil Ferguson talk about liberal empire, they're suggesting it is a, there is something that brings liberalism and empire together. And, and even today, you would have to say the neoconservatives are walking through a door that liberals knocked open for them over 50 years of making the international community more authoritative in thinking about how states can operate within their own borders, talk about state crimes within their own society. That has been part of this uh, loosening up of a system that has made sovereignty less of a counterweight to powerful states. Uh, and so uh, there is both this intertwining of the liberal age and this uh, this this uh, imperial project that that come together, but nonetheless they are in my in the fi in the final instance I think they are distinct logics, and you can see two different futures depending on which one has primacy. Uh, certainly unipolarity makes it easier for the United States to walk away from agreements. It makes it easier to be unilateral. It makes it easier to say we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to constrict our policy autonomy. Uh, that is true. Uh, but unipolarity does other things as well. Unlike bipolar and multipolar systems, this is a, a new argument I'm playing with, there are harder legitimacy problems or standards in a hierarchical unipolar order. In a bipolar and multipolar system, it's easier for secondary states to ally with a powerful state because they know that that powerful state is performing a power-stabilizing function, bipolar fashion or multipolar fashion. But in a one superpower world, what gives the right of that single state to exercise force? It's a legitimacy problem, and one that people on the right, such as Robert Kagan, or the, uh, the left, Perry Anderson, or in the center, uh, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, they're all talking about the same thing. They see the same thing, despite their very different views. So the United States has both more freedom of action and finds a new problem in the way it, it tries to make its power authoritative in the international system. And this is where I would say there are two specific logics of unipolar rule that are in play. One is not un unilateralism. I would call it bilateral hub-and-spoke order, which is out there as an alternative to multilateral rule-based order. And think about it as you can see glimmerings of it in East Asia. The U.S. as the hub and its security ties with Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, and on into Australia and on into Southeast Asia. A bilateral hub-and-spoke order. And that is what some people, uh, Alexander Mottel and others, mean when they talk about empire, a rimless hub-and-spoke in his terms. Uh, and there are advantages, if you're a unipolar state, of, of trying to build a bilateral system. And Rumsfeld is showing the, the temptations there. You help us out on terrorism, we'll give you a, a bilateral trade agreement, or we'll have a security tie with you. Think about the problem of, of the free riders in a unipolar system that's providing public goods. It's in the interest of the lead state to do bilateral deals to redistribute the costs and get something out of that power advantage by individually dealing, dealing with countries. So there's a logic there that you might call the logic that would create a kind of East Asianization of world politics. Hub and spokeism everywhere. Poland, uh, Italy, each country, a disaggregation 
It, it, it prevents uh, trade unions of weak states. It's, it's a divide and rule strategy. That's out there. Uh, but the other strategy, which is an older one, uh, is the strategy that leads the, the unipolar state to say, it's actually in my long-term interest to create a rule-based order so that I don't have to negotiate deals bilaterally, so that I can operate in a system of diffuse reciprocity, which is more efficient than individual case-by-case case, uh, bilateral issue uh, reciprocity, uh, reduces the enforcement costs. It locks in an order, a rule-based system does, over the long term so that when unipolarity ends, and it will, you still have a system that protects your interests. And then just to finally finish, um, behind all of that, which again makes me think that in the contest between uh, a, a imperial system and a, and a liberal system that the liberal logic will, 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 will remain present, if not dominant, is that I think there are incentives uh, that, that will continue to make a leading state come back to, to this logic. And I mentioned some of these ideas, but let me just sort of say that there are three main uh, aspects to this. First of all, the functional imperatives of economic globalization. As economic interdependence goes up, the costs of not operating multilaterally go up, or if you will, the opportunity costs for not uh, concerting your policies with others go up compared to the cost of lost autonomy associated with binding agreements. So there are rising costs of not acting multilaterally in a system that, that finds growing interdependence. Uh, and as I said before, in addition to that, the functional advantages of, of a system with diffuse reciprocity rather than specific uh, individual reciprocity, bilateral negotiations. Secondly, legitimation of U.S. leadership. Uh, this is, as I said before, a, a feature that I think is underappreciated as a challenge for a state in a unipolar system. Uh, it's harder to legitimate. And so one of the clear ways in which you try to legitimate yourself is to wrap yourself in in a set of rules and institutions. And then finally, I, I, I would just say that, that in the end, American political identity also uh, augurs in favor of a, of a commitment to a rule-based order. Uh, the U.S. itself celebrates its own ability to accommodate diversity, uh, religious, uh, racial, and uh, ethnic sectional diversity because it is encased in a system of rules, that's a constitutional system, where uh, fidelity to the rules is the, is the price of admission to membership or citizenship, that that is an insight at the core of the American system that often gets lost in the day-to-day -day geopolitics of American foreign policy, but is lurking in the shadows always, and will bring back even the most curmudgeonly uh, neoconservative, uh, I think, uh, uh, when you think about uh, trying to embark on an imperial project. The costs are, are too great, not just material costs, but costs in terms of lost uh, political identity. So with that, I, I uh, thank you and uh, look forward to the discussion. Our next speaker is Michael Mann. Michael Mann is Professor of Sociology at UCLA. His publications include The Sources of Social Power, 
volumes one and two, with three hopefully on the way soon, and two forthcoming books, Fascists and the Dark Side of Democracy, Explaining Ethnic Cleansing. Professor Matt. Thank you, and uh, thank you to, for inviting me to Princeton uh, for this great occasion. Um, I ought to confess that I'm the source of the four o'clock rule and the lack of the, uh, of, of the interval in the middle, intermission in the middle. However, I'd like to defend myself along with John, and I think Linda, uh, and Ravi. We're the ones who've been here for all of the sessions, so it's unfortunate. <laughs> It's unfortunate that I have to catch the last plane back to Los Angeles in order to at least have two hours of Valentine's Day back at home. Well, uh, I'm giving a talk. Actually, my newest book is this one, Incoherent Empire, which is the title of my paper today. Uh, worth it. New book for the cover alone, a very fine painting by Sue Ko, published by Verso, distributed in this country by Norton. It's called Incoherent Empire. Why empire? And of course I'm wearing a purple shirt in honor of this empire. Why empire? Well, because my subject matter, my immediate subject matter, is the new policy of the Bush administration. And it, this policy is called by some of its adherents the new imperialism. Now, though the word imperialism is still not a very popular one for conservatives, it remains a leftist term, the word imperial uh, has become attractive, apparently. And there have been many comparisons by kind of ideologists, uh, neoconservative ideologists, with previous em empires. The fact is, says Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Charles Krauthammer, no country has been as dominant culturally, economically, technologically, and militarily in the history of the world since the late Roman Empire. Robert Kaplan compares the US to Rome after the Second Punic War. Now a universal power must deploy warrior politics to achieve a Pax Americana. Some of my fellow emigre Brits have been playing Greeks at the Roman court. Neil Ferguson has urged the US, I believe he's uh, in my, my written paper, I put it down as Columbia. I believe it's NYU, but shortly to be Harvard. So he's moving up the <laughs> Roman hierarchy here. He's urged the U.S. to take on the global imperial burden formerly sh shouldered by Britain. Pax Graecia, Pax Romana, Pax Britannica, Pax Americana. Now, of course, one can't find politicians. One can't find Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, etc., uh, saying we're an imperial power. In fact, Rumsfeld explicitly denies it. And so when, when I wrote the book, I said that no politicians use it, but that was before I knew of the Cheney Christmas card. I don't know if any of you received the Cheney Christmas card this year. It's a, a quotation from Benjamin Franklin. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without, this no, without his notice, capital H, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? So we have an empire, and God is on our side, is on the side of the empire. Now, obviously, this is a very limited kind of empire if we're really comparing it to the British or the Romans. And it is only what I call a temporary territorial imperialism. Okay? You threaten countries that you deem to be rogues or evil, and if that doesn't work, you in invade them, occupy them, reconstruct them, 
perhaps put a f leave a few bases there, but essentially then leave it. So it's only a strictly temporary territorial imperialism. And I wouldn't like to be interpreted as saying that it aims at anything more than that. But it is a, this is a departure from the more indirect or informal empire that the US has previously run, uh, and also from hegemony. And I think one can distinguish the three terms of the direct territorial uh, empire, the indirect or informal empire, and the hegemony. So if we think about the US during the Cold War, it's basically an indirect or informal empire in which it constrains the behavior of other states, mainly from the outside, but significantly with the help of local elites. So we are talking about the Cold War, we are talking about a war between great powers that was also seen as a political and a class struggle, according to your perspective, and where the US could always count on the support of the possessing classes, the military, and perhaps liberal Democrats in the better circumstances, uh, faced, all faced with opposition from the lower classes, from socialists, from social democrats in their best circumstances. So that there were always very significant local allies and the US would occasionally intervene, and I will refer to Vietnam later, uh, but for the most part you can act through local proxies, indirect empire, as the British generally operated in the Middle East, uh, through Egypt and countries like this, or in China, uh, not alone, with other imperial powers too, not actually conquering territory, uh, but significantly constraining uh, the actions of other states. Uh, the third kind of power, and in some ways the most satisfactory kind of power domination, is hegemony. And that is where your power, your domination, is reproduced through the actions of the subordinated, and often they're kind of unaware that they're doing this. Uh, it may carry legitimacy, but the important uh, among those subordinated, but the more important point is uh, that it is reproduced through their actions. You think of the dollar as the reserve currency of the world, and the US with command over uh, significant leadership anyway, over international financial institutions, then you see that economic actors all over the world are embedded in this system of essentially lending money to Americans, uh, keeping reserves in dollars, investing in the American economy, etc. And that this is a very effective form of power, perhaps the most effective. So that what I'm saying is that this policy now remarks, uh, marks a movement from indirect and hegemonic forms to the direct, if temp temporary, territorial imperialism. Well, why the incoherence of the title? Well, because I thought, and I thought beforehand, that it wouldn't work, that it would be destroyed by its own internal incoherences. Uh, now, in this respect, I draw very much on two ideas from my previous work, work which has been mainly historical and comparative and not contemporary. The first idea is that in order to exercise power in general, in order to rule over territory, one needs some combination of four different types of power. Economic, ideological, military, and political. 
and this is my sources of social power in the two volumes that I've, I've written. Now, one can go light on one or perhaps even two of these, but one needs in order to rule some rather broad base among economic, ideological, military, and political. And what I perceived was that U.S. was relying overwhelmingly on military power and not even on all forms of military power, but on partial military power, the power of offense, offensive devastation. So that in this respect, I think that the U.S. lacks the powers for territorial, temporary territorial empire, and therefore is significantly less powerful than previous empires. Be not because uh, they themselves had more power, but that the rest of the world had less power then and has more power now. And when co comparing the power of the United States to Great Britain or to France or to Rome and concluding that the US has far more power than these empires did, well, in one sense, that's true. But one shouldn't make comparisons with individual empires if there's a lot of empires going on. In the 19th century, the world was dominated by empires. And from the point of view of those being occupied, it mattered very little whether they spoke English or French or Russian or, at the end of the process, Japanese. It's all part of the same process. Now, what I'm saying is that the world has changed. And this is the second major argument I'm making. That is, the world has moved from an age of empires to one of nation states. Now, I know there are all kinds of theories of globalization which say the nation state is a thing of the past and now we have transnational globalization undermining the state, uh, but I don't buy any of that. When was this age of nation states in the past? That would be entirely Eurocentric to view the world in that way. If you look at 19th century Europe, late 19th century Europe, well, early 20th century Europe, nation states are dominant after the collapse of the great empires of the eastern part of the continent. Uh, but w where are the nation states in the rest of the world? The world is ruled by empires, virtually all of it. This was the age of empires until after 1945, then they collapse, and the last one collapses in 1991, the Soviet Empire, the Russian Empire. So the age of nation states is actually the present one. There are now 191 of them. And they all sit together in a body called the United Nations, quite appropriately. And they all claim to be sovereign over their territories, ruling in the name of the people or nation. Now, I know that most of them are nation states in name only. They don't have effective sovereign control over their territories. Uh, and there, there are pronounced disputes about who the nation is in many of them. Uh, but that's what they want. That's what they aspire to be because they believe that power in the modern world comes through this agency. And so this is the dominant ideology of the world, nationalism and its byproduct, anti-imperialism. Okay, let me briefly go through the powers that the U.S. has. Of course, John has pointed out the great military power that the U.S. has. Obviously, at most levels, it is quite disproportionate to anything that has previously existed in history. So that it was obvious, especially obvious to those who were versed in the RMA, the Revolution in Military <laughs> Affairs of the 1990s, as this administration is, 
that they could invade countries like Afghanistan and Iraq and quickly conquer their armies and cap capture their capitals. Uh, that's perfectly true, because what you're doing when you're fighting that kind of war is you're concentrating your forces. And just like the British and French of the 19th century, the US has great superiority in concentrated firepower. So you could devastate the enemy before they get into range. Now, however, the weakness of this, as we all know now, is pacification. Because if you want to rule over the country, you have to then pacify it. You spread your forces out, you disperse them, and they become more vulnerable. And they especially become more vulnerable today because of the proliferation of weapons of the weak. The Kalashnikov, millions of them in the world, the shoulder uh, held grenade launcher, the uh, epitome of it all, the suicide, the bomb strapped around the waist or whatever. And so the troops become more vulnerable as they are dispersed. Now pacification is not only a military phenomenon, it's also a political phenomenon, and I'm moving over to the political power now, move from the military to the political. Well, the British calculated that in order to pacify a country, you needed about two and a half times the troops that you needed to conquer it. Obviously, the calculation varies according to the kind of enemy concerned. So for Iraq, and my examples will now be about Iraq, Rumsfeld was right, and the generals were wrong, you needed 100,000 and not 250,000 to conquer. But the generals were right, but for the wrong reason. In order to pacify Iraq, you needed 250,000. We actually have, at any one time, fighting troops in Iraq right now. On, if you divide them into three shifts, eight hours each, we have 20,000 Americans. That's about 4,000 Brits and about 1,000 others. There are 39,000 cops in New York City and New York City is a lot safer than the Sunny Triangle. <coughs> but if we look back at what previous empires did, they didn't pacify with their own troops. And this is the political phenomenon in question. When they invaded and defeated the enemy ruler, then they expected, and they usually got, emissaries from various provincial powers, regional lords, chieftains, tribal groupings, merchant oligarchies, who ha all had a calculation to make. Do we carry on supporting our liege lord, our previous ruler, or do we shift allegiances to the British or the French? Can they offer us some advantage? Remember Cortes going into Mexico, learning of the Aztec Empire, and immediately, as soon as he learns of the Aztec Empire, he gets emissaries from the, well, I don't know how to, never know how to pronounce them, Tlaxclans or something. Uh, well, he couldn't have conquered Mexico without them, of course. And nor could the British have conquered any of their colonies without native allies. And nor could the French, and nor could the Romans, and nor could the Mongols to pacify them. <coughs> the British in India had about 250,000 troops. 50 to 70,000 of them were British. The rest were Indians. Indians is our term, not theirs, of course. They had other identities, more local usually. 
In Africa, only 10% of the British troops tended to be British. Uh, the Germans were the highest proportion. They had about 30% troops being German. And they were the least successful and most repressive uh, empire in Africa. Well, the Belgians might, might be for a different reason. <coughs> so, empires are actually pacified and ruled with the help of locals. But in, and this is what uh, we did in Afghanistan. And this is what we've done in a way when we needed to uh, in, uh, during the Cold War. Now even Vietnam, I mean Vietnam was a big failure, but it wasn't implausible that we might win because there was a large South Vietnamese state and army and we thought that you know, with a little bit of help uh, they might win. But what's happened in Iraq is a first is an attempt to conquer a country on our own, essentially, apart from the Kurds in the north. They already had power structures on the ground, patron-client networks. They could do it, and the place can transition with a certain <coughs> amount of violence and disputes about who possesses which bits of property. Uh, but it could be done in the old imperial way there, because there is a local ally. But in the rest of Iraq, no only initially exiles with no significant power base and then you bring in Shia who do have Shia leaders who do have relations to substantial power networks but have their own priorities and have a very uneasy relationship with the US now of course Many people can say, well, this is just another of the mistakes that we made. We didn't have enough troops, or we didn't have enough local allies. But there's a more fundamental problem here. There were none. I mean, there could conceivably have been, if the U.S. had done serious deal with the Shia beforehand, but ac and accepted that their priorities are not ours, and have used them in a divide-and-rule strategy, and the Shia would try and use the Americans. I mean, this is, again would be a traditional thing. But this is really not what the US is about. It's not about that kind of uh, take me to your leader. Uh, uh, if you support us, we'll support you, and you do what you like in your sphere, and we'll rule loosely over the top of you. So this is kind of, it would, was inconceivable that the US would do this. Now, the same thing would be likely to happen in Iran or Libya or Syria. Uh, obviously, some of these are countries of greater or lesser populations and powers. Uh, North Korea is obviously different for other reasons, and the U.S. never intended, I don't hope they never intended to do this. Um, but there is a reason underlying this, why there aren't any local political allies. And that turns us to ideological power, to the shift that's occurred in terms of ideologies in the world. Uh, on our side, the problem, the only place that, that I can see that liberalism kind of enters into this is the change in world values towards more humanitarian, more liberal values, not specific to the US, but the US shares in it, that our troops cannot 
rampage through the Sunni Triangle, as the British would have done or the Romans would have done, burning villages, crops, uh, killing the young men as a sign to all the others that if you resist, this is what, you ha uh, what happens. The weapons of mass communication would bring this news back to us, this ideology, this contravention of our own ideology back to us, and uh, the Pentagon uh, would not be able to continue with it, nor indeed uh, does the Pentagon want to do that. It tries to minimize civilian casualties. Uh, well, I mean, that's a, you know, in a slightly uh, dubious way, but nonetheless, there is concern to do it. But the main shift is actually on the other side, as far as, as it were, the natives are concerned. The British and the French and the Romans were able to do what they did and to get the Allies essentially because it was rare that they encountered a broad-based ideology in the sense of a, an identity, a cultural identity which could, saw, could serve as a source of resistance for a very broad social area. Sometimes they would have quite a broad-based religion and occasionally there would be some quasi-ethnic um, identity or at least a spread-out ruling group sharing the same uh, ethnicity. Uh, but the basic story is there was no nationalism. Therefore, if you did side with the British or the French, you weren't accused of being a traitor to the nation. It was indeed useful to your patron-client networks. They were grateful to you if you sided with the winning side. Obviously, the British were forced to retreat. Then the Afghan allies got a pretty sharp treatment uh, from their fellow Afghans if, uh, 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 after the British left. Uh, but by and large, the imperialists won, and so you join the winning side. Now, once, not now, early 20th century, ideals of nationalism spread, influenced by Western ideals of liberalism, socialism, and fascism and that these all spread nationalism and anti-imperialism. Uh, <coughs> and then the empires are finished, because there's a broad-based identity of resistance. People think of themselves as Indians. Now, that ideology still dominates the world. It's the ideology which uh, Woodrow Wilson famously uh, proclaimed in his very ambiguous uh, desire to bring about national self-determination. Ambiguous because it's a kind of confusion of the ethnos and the demos. You know, we're bringing democracy, but it's all, we're also bringing national democracy for the dominant national uh, group. And this ideology is now the dominant one of the world. And it is accompanied by anti-imperialism. Now, of course, we know all this from Vietnam because Vietnam brought a single movement of national liberation against us. So that's very familiar from there. Iraq does not seem a likely terrain where this might happen because <coughs> there isn't an uncontested or dominant conception of the nation in Iraq. There are several. There is the kind of quasi-secular nationalism, Iraqi nationalism, that Saddam Hussein very much rose to power on and tried to impl implicate for the first two-thirds of his rule. 
on the one hand. Then there are Shia and Sunni identities and Kurdish identities, which certainly in the case of the Sunni and the Shia are broader than just sources of identity, broader than just uh, Iraq. And then there are more fragmentary tribal clan relations, which probably always existed, which certainly always did exist as a substructure to a lot of this, which Saddam then tried to cultivate in his last years. <coughs> so, it would seem to be a grounds for, a, a fertile grounds for divide and rule of the old type. Uh, but, unfortunately, something has changed and they all share something in common. That is, they all share the view that Iraq is for the Iraqis. And this, after all, is the dominant ideology of the world, as I keep saying. So what we have here is a contested nation-state, but not one where there are going to be particularly loyal allies from the various groups in contrast. So we now are faced with what amounts to a defeat. Not a defeat in the conventional sense, nor could it ever be a defeat in the conventional sense. But our forces are retreating. We have pulled back our forces, or Americans have, uh, pulled back the forces um, into fewer, larger bases and are trying to put the uh, onus onto the Iraqi police force. But it's much too little and too late. The Iraqi police force is not well trained, not well organized, uh, had to be created anew because we destroyed the very, uh, all of those uh, actual features of the organization of the, of the country which we might then be able to use uh, afterwards and we're seeing that they are immediately taking heavy losses as soon as we start to do this. Uh, it's clear to me, it was clear to me beforehand that uh, this would be a disaster and would be a disaster if it was repeated on other countries. Now, Afghanistan is a little different um, <coughs> because <coughs> we have used there one faction against another, and so there can be some minimal basis of order, uh, perhaps as long as we stay there. But it isn't a great success either. One should also mention in terms of ideological power that the weapons of mass communication go there too. So all of the various features of our new imperialism which are perceived as being anti-Muslim, invasions of two Muslim countries, uh, siding ever more overtly with Israel against Palestine, against the Palestinians, uh, incarcerating prisoners without any rights in Guantanamo Bay, rounding up the Muslims, sorry, the, uh, the young immigrant males, well, aged 16 to uh, 49, I believe, uh, immigrants and uh, deporting some of them and incarcerating some others from 26 countries, 25 of them are Muslim countries, North Korea is the 26th, for four days in December 2002 another country was added alongside Azerbaijan it was Armenia and over the next three days the White House was inundated with pressure with all mouthing the single simple statement but we are Christians and so on the fourth day, the, the uh, Armenian immigrants uh, no longer were being arrested. Now all of these things are reproduced continuously on a daily basis through Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya and various Arab newspapers. 
and other Muslim newspapers too. So again, weapons of mass communication have leveled the playing field. So I'm making a kind of macro-historical claim here, which actually I wasn't aware of before I started reading this book, uh, that um, despite our, our very strong concern with the North exploiting the South and dominating the South, that actually, in certain ways, the balance of power has shifted towards the South. Not in terms of high military power, perhaps in terms of low military power, and of course, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction would be a rather more dramatic one. That is, especially chemical and biological weapons, if they could be seriously harnessed, would bring them within the reach of quite uh, poor states. But the Kalashnikov and the grenade, etc. These also are leveling features, but more particularly that this is the age of the nation state and of its ideologies, and that we no longer have the ideological control of the world that our predecessors had. Now, this is a failure, and it will be quickly recognized as a failure, one way or another, whether uh, explicitly or implicitly, and the US will hopefully, sooner rather than later, go back to the 1990s. Of course, it can do so. There is no balancing, as, as John made clear. I mean, the Europeans, uh, the others are irrelevant to what has happened because they cannot project force in a single direction of any significance. <coughs> now, what is it? what would the US be going back to? Well, I don't think it is quite right to call it multilateralism. I, I think that actually in both, I haven't talked about economic power at all, but in terms of, the, of economic power, what the US has a kind of hegemony which gives it a backseat driver role. That is, we don't intervene directly in foreign countries uh, with uh, economic power, except in the specific aid we give to Israel and the neighboring countries and, uh, and one or two other countries in significant amounts. <coughs> And in terms of the kind of international politics, in terms of political power, what is often called multilateralism is really not multilateralism. It's uncontested US leadership, which is not as hegemonic as the role of the dollar, but has some elements of it. I mean, increasingly, if the UN, the UN intervene, intervened only when the US wanted it to, and where the US didn't it want it to, it didn't intervene. Uh, the imbalance in the force, in the power, means that if we take the main role of the UN as being the Security Council's interventions, uh, then these are very much controlled by the US. And given that no other powers have the ability to do this, uh, they have to regard it as a fact of life. So that actually the, uh, the US can go back to the previous arrangements, which I'm always hes hesitant to call any form of empire liberal, certainly the Cold War, if you look at it from the point of view of abroad, can't be conceived of as being liberal. It may be viewed as being liberal here, but not at the receiving end, and even more so in the case of the British Empire in the 19th century, which was, is sometimes viewed historically as being liberal, but not if you're in the, on the receiving end of it. Uh, but we can go back to 
this uh, uh, world of largely unquestioned American leadership in the economic and the political realm, and that's what I think will happen. This will be a mere blip in American trajectory. Again, continuing without break, we'll go directly to our comments. And again, as has been the case in the three other panels, uh, these are three Princeton faculty who I'll be introducing largely through their regional focus, uh, as their role is to include, to, to add a more parochial or provincial view on these large global uh, analysis. Um, we will just do them in order so we don't have all the traffic up on the podium. The first commentator is Jeff Herbst, professor of politics here at Princeton who has done most of his scholarly work on Africa. Uh, second will be uh, Professor Ezra Suleiman of the Department of Politics, also at Princeton, who has done most of his work on Europe, specifically on France. And the third commentator will be Professor uh, Harold James of the History Department, who has also is an economic historian, has worked largely in Europe, particularly in Germany. So we will begin with Jeff. Thank you, Miguel. And given that we have a hard uh, deadline of 4 o'clock, I'll stick pretty closely to uh, instructions of speaking for only 10 minutes or so. As Miguel also said, uh, the terms of engagement, as it were, uh, was that we were supposed to take these broad macro-historical talks and try to uh, apply them to our particular areas of study. And though I have views on many of the issues uh, that have been raised, uh, let me talk about uh, uh, the issues under uh, discussion only in relationship to Africa. Uh, so when I saw the topics, empire, imperialism, domination, I thought I would have something to say, indeed a great deal, uh, about these topics because certainly Africa has known imperialism, empire, and domination uh, for most of the 20th century and indeed the colonial uh, apparatus only disappeared a few years ago. What is striking to me, however, uh, to be utterly frank, is how little traction I get in terms of understanding what is going on in Africa or indeed in participating in African discussions uh, between Africans or as an interlocutor between Africans and Americans primarily, given the discussion at hand. Um, and both papers, I would say, talk about world opinion and I think they basically mean the chattering classes in Paris, Berlin, London, and a few other places. But certainly Western Europe and the world are conflated a good amount of time with occasional nods to Asia, which I think really means South Korea and Japan. Uh, and Michael was quite frank in talking about this really only in relationship to Iraq. I mean, these are not the issues that dominate African international relations. They have very little resonance in the discussions among key policymakers, and they do not indeed describe the relations between Africa and the United States or Europe. Now, why? Well, this is a good part of debate between the United States and Western Europe. Fair enough. These are big issues. 
but then it should be said that these are issues between the United States and Western Europe. But second, I think at a deeper level, international relations has always been an area study, an area study primarily of Europe, without acknowledging that indeed the rest of the world had international relations even before independence in the 1960s and continues to have international relations to this day. Let me give an example uh, to highlight at the beginning what I mean. What is the key issue for most African leaders in the international system today? The key issue is agricultural subsidies, okay? That far more than foreign aid or anything else is keeping African economies behind because they cannot exploit their comparative advantages in cotton, sugar, and a whole lot of other things because Europe, most of all, Japan, second of all, but the United States to a significant and increasing amount continue to subsidize inefficient and uh, farmers and especially inefficient companies. This is true both in the United States and Europe, uh, so that they don't have to compete on the world system. Now, in the African view, this is a uh, uh, consortium, a white consortium, it needs to be said, uh, of rich countries trying to keep poor countries down. It has nothing to do with empire, liberalism, or Iraq, frankly, uh, but is the binding issue of the day uh, for many of them. So. Uh, <coughs> kind of issue that dominates discussion in 45 or so capitals in sub-Saharan Africa. A second great issue for the Africans always has been, who speaks for them on the international stage? Well, I happened to be in South Africa during Seattle, and uh, the South Africans were saying, who are these folks claiming to speak for us? We want a trade agreement so we can trade and begin to beat down American trade barriers. Um, this has always been an issue for the Africans. Um, they fear as much that people, self-designated uh, proponents and adherents are speaking for them in the West as uh, ever before, and they are trying indeed to nominate their own champions, mainly large countries like South Africa and Nigeria, to speak for them. But again, it is not about empire. The third great issue is, what is the West going to do about the security architecture of Africa? Okay. Here, there's been a lot of work done, a lot of successful work. Uh, in a continent that had the most civilian casualties from warfare in the 1990s, what we've seen in recent years is the technologies of conflict resolution and peacekeeping have improved immensely, in part because of striking multilateral cooperation between Africans, Western countries, and NGOs. For instance, in the next few weeks, there will be a peace agreement in Sudan, okay? The New York Times doesn't write many stories about this, but a conflict which has easily killed two million people, uh, a lot, over the last decade is going to end. It is going to end in good part because of coordinated diplomacy between Kenya, Ethiopia, the United States, Norway, and a series of NGOs who have participated in the discussions. Um, the Africans want to know if the United States, Norway, or others are going to be participating in other peacekeeping agreements that could go a long way to solving African conflicts. Not as the only movers, 
There were lots of Africans promoting the agreement in Sudan, but as enablers. And that's the kind of question, indeed, that is motivating people who are asking, can these conflicts which have killed hundreds or thousands or millions of people over the last few years end? Now, the 70s and 80s, to back up a little bit and try to provide some context, were dominated, as Michael said, by the Cold War. Um, at a couple of different levels, uh, of course, the great powers or the superpowers did intervene from time to time in conflicts uh, when their uh, clients were in danger, as the U.S. and France, Morocco did, uh, to keep Mobutu Sese Seko in power twice in the 1970s. And the threat of international intervention was also important. More importantly, uh, modest amounts of foreign aid were given to those clients who could play the superpower game, and uh, that managed to keep a large number of people in power who probably should have gone by the wayside long ago. When the Cold War ended, uh, the United States and Europe did not disengage from Africa. The Soviets, of course, did. Um, but changed the clients significantly to be based less so on strategic assets and geographic position and more so on economic and political performance. As a result, many of the worst dictatorships of the 1980s, Mobutu in Zaire, Doe in Liberia, Siad Barre in Somalia, so on, fell because the intravenous tube from the Cold War conflict uh, was no longer feeding them. Uh, and they went by the by. What happened next was that the Africans finally began their own international relations. Okay? In the West, this is largely a story of disengagement. Is the West going to marginalize Africa? On the ground, this is about Africans finally seeing that they have the initiative. Uh, to finally conduct international relations in what is in many ways a very traditional way. So when John says, for instance, that the U.S. is the only country in the world able to project power, I understand him to mean the U.S. is the only country able to project power across an ocean. Uh, but when I see 13 countries involved in the war in Democratic Republic of Congo, or when I see the Angolan government invade and overthrow a democratically elected government in Congo Brazzaville, or when I see lots and lots of people playing in other people's backyards, it's hard for me to say that there's no power projection in the world today. In fact, uh, Africans are finally getting the international relations that they presumably want, which looks a lot like Europe before 1945, with big, powerful countries sometimes invading others, and more often than not, weak states, while retaining, as Michael said, the nominal notions of sovereignty, also becoming uh, the playground for lots of people who want to intervene. Now, there's nothing particularly surprising about it, except it doesn't have much to do with empire or liberalism. It has to do with a lot of people in a lot of different ca capitals making calculations about how they can advance or protect their national interests. And I think that is going to continue for quite some time. Now, Michael's discussion of the nation state did have resonance for me, since I'm talking about 45 countries which are still viewed as sovereign, even though they cannot physically defend their own territory, and indeed quite often do not try to control much of their own territory. And indeed, a critical question for the Africans in the post-Cold War era was, 
was, would the international system, which they had helped design in order to protect these nation states, be threatened? Uh, in the early 1990s, they were very worried. Uh, they were worried because of uh, increased Chapter 7 interventions by the United Nations. They were worried that the revulsion after the Rwandan genocide in 1994 would finally cause uh, large numbers of people to say, you know, sovereignty isn't all it's made up to be. We should try to intervene and overthrow autocrats or those who are too awful to bear. And this is very threatening to the African leaders because many of them were uh, in serious trouble beyond the pale, however mentioned, uh, however measured, and were worried that uh, upsetting of the multilateral system, which protected their own non-liberal regimes, uh, would be a real challenge to them. Uh, and here, the immediate uh, identification between multilateralism and liberalism should be challenged. Many developing countries used the multilateral system of sovereignty to protect their illiberal regimes. Ten years later, they have a lot less to worry about, I think, uh, and they believe that also. Um, the international system has community has shown far less willingness to try to overturn uh, the apple cart. There's very little support for secessionist movements, even when, as in Somalia, they have very good claims uh, for promotion of human rights and good governance, and not a whole lot of interest in new devices for sovereignty. Thus, in Europe, there were a lot of boundary changes in the 1990s. In Africa, there were practically none. A really quite monumental development, given how weak most African states really are. Uh, Michael, in his paper, points out that Colin Powell was the only person booed at the Johannesburg Environmental Sustainability uh, Conference two years ago. Uh, that's true. It should be noted that one of the people cheered the most was Robert Mugabe uh, because he lit into Tony Blair's so-called imperialism uh, for Blair suggesting that perhaps Zimbabwe could do better. Uh, and Mugabe's defense of his own sovereignty was met with wild cheering uh, from this United Nations conference. So I think what we're looking at in sub-Saharan Africa, I think, is not surprisingly, these debates don't give you much traction. These debates are largely Western debates uh, about largely Western questions, uh, which are very time-bound. I think Michael's right that these are uh, kind of blips in some ways before we get back uh, to other issues. Um, what we see on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa is that the lessening of involvement day to day by the great powers and the superpower has enabled people on the ground more freedom of action, more degrees of freedom, and they have taken up that freedom, sometimes to promote peace and order, sometimes to promote disorder and war. Uh, but they've been able to make their own calculations on a much better basis even while preserving a multilateral system which gives them sovereignty and certain prerogatives which they might not normally have as among the weakest countries in the world in a world supposedly of empire. Uh, so, you know, I'm sympathetic to these debates which I think are important and indeed critical between the United States and Europe, parts of Asia, parts of the Middle East, 
But uh, there is an international relations going on uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, it's very important. Sometimes it results in peace, as we'll see in Sudan in the next couple of weeks. Sometimes it results in war, as we saw in Congo. But it has less to do with what's going on in Washington and Paris, and much more to do with what people in Pretoria and Kigali, Bujumburo, uh, and Addis are thinking about. Thanks very much. Thank you, Miguel, uh, for uh, organizing this uh, conference. And uh, we're now getting to the end of it. And I'm going to try to follow the example of the previous speakers and stick to the time limit. Uh, I can't say for Europe what Jeff just said, obviously, for um, Africa, because it is really, uh, as he called them, the chattering classes are, in fact, in London and in Paris and uh, uh, in Berlin and so on. Um, I think that both uh, John and Michael agree that the United States um, uh, is, is the sole superpower or hyperpower, whatever you want to call it, and uh, uh, may have overwhelming political, military, cultural, ideological uh, weight. Uh, but they both agree, at least uh, Michael states it explicitly in his paper, that the United States is not an empire in the traditional sense in the sense that it seeks to occupy uh, and to control the domestic and international affairs of uh, 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 its nations. And he says very clearly that this is why this is the, the end of the age of empire. If you read the, um, I'm going to try to be parochial, as Miguel asked, but it's hard to be that parochial because everything is dialectic and I can only talk about Europe in this particular context in relationship uh, to the United States. If you look at some of the literature, and it actually has become an immense literature um, that castigates the United States and Europe, you'll find that most of the attacks uh, uh, on U.S. power or hegemony uh, says that uh, the United States is both a hegemonic power and actually is a weak power. Uh, that is, if you look at it really, if you look at its large budget, budgets, if you look at its uh, gluttony for oil, if you look at its uh, uh, trade deficits, uh, its military expenditures, and so on and so forth, you find actually that uh, there is a kind of a hollowness uh, there. Uh, uh, one book that I'll just cite, there are many, many, many books actually. Uh, I cite it only because I noticed the other day that it was being... Uh, translated uh, by the Columbia University Press, even though I recall reading it two years ago for another press and suggested that they don't publish it. Um, but there are a lot of presses in America. And the book actually argues that this is the end of the uh, American empire, uh, spending a good part of the book uh, saying how powerful the United States was and what a force for ill it is, and then saying, in any case, it's doomed. Uh, it's almost as if uh, this is my reading. America's critics uh, in Europe uh, want the United States to be hegemonic, and yet uh, they fear its weakness just as much. Just as, for example, uh, a strong uh, uh, dollar is seen as a political weapon 
with which to beat the euro down, and a weak dollar is seen as a way of punishing uh, uh, the European allies for their behavior during the Iraq uh, crisis. So there are two issues that I want to um, deal with in these brief remarks. One concerns the nature of the threat uh, posed uh, to the United States and to the world order, and that is at the heart of the divisions between Europe and the United States. And the other is the divergent response uh, of the United States and of the European allies. And I think for the time being, I can still call them allies. But you will see that this is not uh, 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 something that is necessarily of a permanent state. Most analyses of the world situation treat the United States as sort of a, 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 a conductor of a world orchestra uh, with the rest of the world, and particularly the NATO allies, as merely subjects uh, of this manipulation. Uh, a French weekly, for example, recently um, uh, elected George Bush as the man of the year, uh, and uh, it's the equivalent of Time magazine, and the title was uh, the man who wrecked our year. Uh, and I thought it was a very telling and very representative uh, view of, uh, you can find very similar views in, in many of the other European uh, countries. That is, it was not uh, Saddam Hussein who had wrecked the year, or bin Laden, or what have you, or terrorism, but of course uh, uh, George Bush. And it is a very, very significant uh, uh, feature of the European opinion. In fact, there is a greater and greater uh, questioning throughout Europe as to whether the United States and Europe in fact share the same values any longer. It used to be said always, yes, there are differences here and there, but in fact we have at bottom the same values and so on. Uh, Habermas published a very, very influential paper not long ago, uh, late last year, in which in fact he argued that the United States and Europe shared completely different values, did not share the same values, in fact, he says. There is now a European na nation, there is a European identity, and it has nothing to do with what goes on at the, on the other side of the uh, uh, Atlantic. Um, now, um, I think he was a bit uh, uh, optimistic about the European identity, and certainly uh, uh, the embryonic uh, European nation which, in my view, uh, is far off. The important point, I think, is now there is a strong desire among European elites uh, to distance themselves from the United uh, States. It's almost as if uh, they have been longing for a long time, and one can actually understand this, to free themselves from the grip of the United States, from the grip in which they have been held by this Atlantic Alliance, which has suddenly come to, be, to seem as a, 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 a straitjacket. Now, all this is not new, uh, and I think we have very, very short memories when we think that everything was just uh, hunky-dory uh, during the years of the Cold War. You know, for example, that President Clinton said, uh, oh, my God, if only uh, 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 we had the Cold War back. Uh, and this sort of retrospective uh, uh, nostalgia, uh, which uh, rewrites events uh, forgets how complicated the situation was during the entire uh, Cold War period of the manifold divisions that existed between Europe and the United States, whether it was going back to Suez, uh, whether it was the Pershing missiles, whether it was Cuba, 
or the Vietnam War, and so on and so forth. Uh, there never was that kind of um, unity uh, that Clinton and others uh, saw or read back into uh, the Cold War. But at least the European elites knew during this period that the American umbrella was indispensable. And I think that it was that that kept uh, the alliance uh, together. Uh, this is no longer the case. And the hostility to the United States across the world has merely, I think, provided a great deal of encouragement uh, to the anti-US forces in Europe. And in this context, it's not difficult to understand why uh, we now have uh, hear more and more about the disunity of the West. In fact, we hear more and more that the West is divided. And there are now lots of books that are published, the West against the West, and that kind of thing. Uh, if there is one region that could have weighed in uh, uh, on the United States and exercised a real influence, obviously it was Europe. And in that sense, uh, Europe is, of course, not uh, Africa. It is at the heart of international relations. And whatever view one takes <laughs> of Europe's actions, and they're very, very divergent, one thing is certain, and that is, one, that in this whole process, Europe did not advance the cause uh, of the European Union. It also did not advance the cause or the standing of the Atlantic Alliance, which is why I started by saying that, in fact, this, the Atlantic Alliance is likely to be uh, the main culprit or to pay the price for what has taken place. And finally, I think, uh, Europe missed an opportunity to constitute itself as a regional power. And it's only in, as a regional power uh, that Europe could have had any weight or could have any weight where the United uh, States is concerned. Now, there is a paradox in what has taken place. You'll recall that in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, in fact, uh, NATO very quickly got together and uh, voted for uh, the invocation of Article 5 of the NATO Charter. It was the first time that it had invoked this element at critical element of collective security. But very soon afterwards, everything fell apart, and we come to these kind of divisions that I have been talking about that allowed Habamas and others to say that really we don't have anything to do with the Americans. Uh, we don't share anything with them, and so on and so forth. Um, and Habamas, I cite him simply because everybody else, all politicians now cite him, because he's such a guru that uh, he, what he says, wrong as it may be, has a considerable amount of weight in the European context. Um, now, what has caused this divergence? Why did Schroeder, Chirac, and others adopt the categorical positions that they adopted throughout the Iraq uh, uh, crisis and situate themselves in direct opposition to the United States. If you read Kagan and others and other neoconservative writers, you'll see that uh, there is a widespread view in the United States that the, United, that the Europeans are no longer interested in exercising power, in exercising force, uh, in, in fact, uh, showing, uh, in dealing with power. They feel very, very uncomfortable about it. Um, there is some truth in this. But I've often wondered whether the United States would have been so ready to use force against Iraq or uh, Syria or Iran or what have you uh, if there had not been September 11th. 
In other words, would there have been a divergence between the United States and Europe had September 11th not taken place? I mean, the other day in a press conference, uh, President Bush was asked uh, about the allies and whether we are about to forgive them and so on and so forth, and he didn't want to answer, and they kept prodding him and prodding him, and finally he said, okay, you want me to talk about France and Germany? So here's what I, all I have to say is, we had September 11th, and they didn't. And I think what he meant by that, he doesn't usually elaborate on what he says, as you know, but I think what he meant was precisely that uh, we see the world very, very differently now uh, from uh, the Europeans because they did not experience September 11th. I think that the Atlantic Alliance, by the way, was bound uh, uh, to evolve. It was bound to evolve for all sorts of reasons, clearly because the Europeans no longer felt as children that had to be taken care of uh, as immediately after the war. And um, uh, there would have been a change, but I think it could have uh, occurred m more harmoniously, more in agreement, rather than what has taken place and the Europeans actually um, uh, slamming the door. But I have a note from Miguel, and he wants me uh, to uh, respect the time. So I will. Let me, let, let me just say a, a couple of things very quickly. I think what is if you, at the bottom of the separation between the United States and Europe today is that the United States sees itself as fighting a war on terror. The Europeans feel that this is a danger, actually, to the way in which they have constructed their life over the last 50 years. The way in which they have constructed their life over the last 50 years has been uh, 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 by undermining their own sovereignty, by creating unity, uh, by not paying that much attention to sovereignty and seeing much more strength in unity. The United States has done just the opposite, in fact. Uh, so that it is a, a sort of a fight between movement on the one hand, which is the United States, of taking risks, of wanting to change the world order, and the, the Europeans who absolutely have been insisting on the status quo. There is no agreement on, on the dangers, actually. What are the dangers? For the United States, there are three. There's terrorism, there's, they're all to do with terrorism, rogue states and failed states. The, all the dangers come from these three uh, uh, elements. The Europeans just simply don't see it that way. They do not see that uh, terrorism is that important. I read an article the other day by a former French foreign minister who, who sees himself as a, a, in the direct line of Kissinger and Metternich and so on and so forth. And he says, well, terrorism is really not that important. What we really, the great challenge of the 21st century is the biosphere. Uh, so when you have that kind of attitude, which is actually a direct slap to the United States, um, you kind of understand in effect, what has been uh, 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 taking place and why I think that this division has gone so far. Why, in fact, Bush is seen, if you read all the polls, for example, that are taken in most of the European countries, uh, um, Bush is seen as a far greater danger than uh, the terrorist that he is uh, uh, trying to fight. So, uh, to, in my view, I think that um, there probably will not be an Atlantic alliance. I think the Europeans will not have a Europe because, as Michael emphasizes, and I very much share this view, uh, that nationalism has merely been wished away uh, and has not act nowhere near disappeared in the European context. And I think we are beginning to realize that more and more uh, now. And given that, I think a European political entity is not in the offing for tomorrow. 
I think the Atlantic Alliance has probably uh, uh, ended its days, as certainly in the way that we have known it. And so I'm not really sure where uh, Europe is going, where the United States is going. It thinks it knows at least. Thank you. I'm fully aware that I'm the only thing standing between Michael Mann and his aeroplane, so I'm going to be very brief and telegraphic. Um, I was wondering when, when uh, Miko was making the introductions uh, what kind of parochialism he wanted me to represent. Um, and uh, Ezra has already uh, wonderfully spoken for all of Europe. Um, what I thought I would try to represent uh, is actually uh, a reflection on something in uh, Michael's paper, but it's implied in John's presentation as well. Uh, that is that the idea of empire is a completely bogus one that shouldn't really be applied and isn't of any use at all, but it's been applied by, primarily by expatriate Brits, um, expatriate British historians uh, who are doing a great deal of damage by making uh, unfortunate historical allusions that unwise American politicians then take up in their Christmas cards. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually want to say that the, I think there is something uh, real about the discussion of empire and I think the fact that it is so widely discussed illustrates something really important. Um, very briefly, I think there are two ways in which you can conceive of the world today and this is something that draws on uh, what John was doing in his paper. Uh, there's one worldview that says this is a world of globalization and a world of rules and a world of agreements and a world of multilateralism. And there's another view which says that this is a world of power and of force and uh, of empire. So you could really say that the two worldviews, the globalization worldview, as it were, on the one hand, and an imperialism view on the other hand, uh, go alongside each other. And it seems to me that they're completely incompatible mutually. And the oddity of it is that they rather resemble those optical illusions that you know when you look at some drawn squares on a two-dimensional, pretending to be a three-dimensional surface. You can either see the squares coming towards you or you can see them going away from you, but you can't see both at the same time. And it seems to me that that's exactly what this globalization view is and the imperialism view. You can't see both um, at the same time. And yet you can describe the same objects. If you think of the economic sphere, you can describe trade agreements as a system of rules uh, developed by the GATT and then the WTO, or you can think of it as a projection of power about the particular uh, interests, the narrowly focused interests in the major industrial countries that then are imposed on this system. If you think of the debate about the international monetary order, you can think about it as a system of rules about fixed exchange rates in the Bretton Woods era and uh, flexible exchange rates since the 1970s, or you can think of it as as many people in Europe and in Asia do, uh, as the imposition of the US dollar in either the fixed exchange rate regime or the flexible exchange rate regime. If you think of the debate about corporate governance that has transcended national uh, frontiers and is one of the really big debates recent to emerge only over the last 15 years, uh, you can again think of it as making rules uh, for global business or you can think about it as creating investment opportunities uh, for primarily U.S. enterprises to take up, buy up Asian assets on the cheap after disasters like 1997 or 1998. Um, 
I, ju I just uh, take those examples from the economic area, but you could, you could also think of the same kind of uh, discussions about uh, the, the, the military intervention. Uh, does military intervention make the world of rules safer, or, or is military intervention destabilizing? Um, you, you have to take a choice on this one. Um, and the way people choose, it seems to me, goes in big cycles. It's, it's, it's something that uh, moves really quite dramatically from one worldview to the other, that the 1990s were much more of a worldview of globalization and the world of the 21st century has been up to now much more of a worldview uh, about imperialism. Why does it do this? Um, I think um, there are domestic reasons as well as international reasons that uh, periods of globalization encourage um, uh, big changes in wealth and income, whether it promotes greater inequality is controversial and it was debated yesterday. But the, there are great diversities and they uh, make people unhappy and uneasy. Uh, the discussion about the U.S. empire is also a discussion about the world of U.S. corporations and the post-Enron uh, situation. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the idea is that there are uh, concrete economic interests that take advantage of imperialism. So the Hobson and Lenin and Hilferdink uh, visions, interpretations of the world of imperialism have come back again uh, at the beginning of the 21st uh, century. Uh, so it seems to me that the inequalities of uh, globalization period, um, the changes, the rapidity of change, the increased uncertainty, um, make people want to find demons and demonize things and push many analysts back into uh, the world of thinking about this as imperialism, whether or not um, that is actually right. And this is something that I, I believe comes in great cycles. Uh, I can't really say this at any length at all now, uh, but I wanted to just conclude uh, by saying that 1776 is a great year. Um, and uh, I just would take two citations uh, from two books uh, published in 1776, which seemed to me of immediate contemporary relevance um, and uh, were also by the people who wrote these things in 1776 uh, thought of as drawing lessons from history and from very long spells of history uh, about the present. Uh, one of the books that was published in 1776 um, uh, was, uh, was Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, um, and Smith has some wonderful passages that you can read uh, and seem to me to be not bad descriptions of what's going on uh, in the world of 2003 and 2004. In great empires, he says in The Wealth of Nations, the people who live in the capital and in the provinces remote from the scene of action feel many of them scarce any inconveniency from the war, but enjoy at their ease the amusement of reading in the newspapers the exploits of their own fleets and armies. And that's, that's the world of the mobilization of imperialism for political views, for political purposes. The, the other great book that was published in 1776, or at least the first volume uh, was published in 1776, was Edward Gibbon's uh, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and uh, Gibbon was describing with the Roman Empire a world that he also saw with the British Empire in the 1770s and its obvious problems. Um, and he too started with a vision of the empire as the empire of peace uh, that is 
gradually broken up by the force of nationalist uh, reactions and by the impact uh, of military uh, adventure. So, so Gibbon starts the decline and fall with the uh, description of the Emperor Augustus. Inclined to peace by his temper and situation, it was easy for him to discover that Rome, in her present exalted situation, had much less to hope than to fear from the chance of arms, and that in the prosecution of remote wars, the undertaking became every day more difficult, the event more doubtful, the possession more precarious and less beneficial. I can't do better than Gibbon. Thank you.